Matthew chapter 2, I want to review a little bit. We talked about uh, the wise men uh, that the Bible refers to as magi. And uh, just to give you a quick uh, review, uh, the Bible says that these magi came from the east. And uh, it doesn't say necessarily there were three of them. There could have been three of them. The Bible doesn't say how many there were. They weren't kings. They were magicians. They were astrologers. They were, they were counselors to the king. But they were very important. They were very important people. They not only had wealth, they had status in their community. There were four empires that ruled uh, the Middle East, of course, during those times, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. The Babylonians were set up much like the Israelites were set up. The Israelites were set up into tribes, and one of those tribes was the Levites. The Levites would oversee priestly duties, including the coronation of a king. Well, the Babylonians were set up the same way. They were set up into their particular uh, tribes, and one of those tribes was called the Magi. The Magi were the ones that would perform the priestly duties for the Babylonians, including likewise overseeing the coronation of a king. Now, I mentioned to you that Daniel was one of these Magi. If you read the book of Daniel, I just want to throw this scripture out to you very quickly. It says in Daniel chapter 4 that there was a, a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who had a dream, but he could not find anyone to interpret the dream. He looked all around. It says, but at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magi or the magicians because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation so Daniel was the chief of the magi at one time and so Daniel was a godly person a holy man served God the holy God the Bible says and he no doubt passed on his hunger his passion for God and the prophetic words that are in his book he passed them on from generation to generation to generation until it fell upon the ears of men who were astrologers and magicians who were part of this tribe and they saw a star they saw a star shining in the east. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled... And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now look at verse number 7. It says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, 
Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before him, till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here's the account of the Magi, what we refer to as the wise men. They see a star in the east and they begin to follow this star, understanding that there is a connection between this star and the birth of their savior or the king of the Jews. At some point, we talked about this last week, the star disappeared because they go into Jerusalem and they begin to ask questions. Now, you can imagine that when they even came into the city, Jerusalem was, of course, a large city with numerous people, but they came with a caravan. They came probably with servants. They came upon not just three camels, but many camels, and those camels were loaded down. So seeing these men, the Bible says that Jerusalem was troubled just having them come in, and they begin to ask questions. Now, I don't know this to be exactly true, but you can kind of suppose that when they were asking these questions, their question was, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. I would imagine that they thought they were walking into a celebration. That everyone was there to worship. Everyone was looking for the Christ child. That, that they were just going to be a, play a minor role in what was to be a huge celebration. Instead, they walk into a situation where nobody's looking for him. Nobody is worshiping him. And they find themselves before Herod the Great. And they ask him a question. Now think of the irony of this question. They're asking the current king of the Jews, where is the future king of the Jews? Where is he? Where is he who is to replace you? I mean, could you imagine the audacity and the boldness of going before the current king? Now, they didn't know his reputation or anything about him. They just knew. Maybe they had some inkling. Maybe they even heard some things. But they come into the current king, and they ask the current king, where is the future king? Where's the one that's going to replace you? Where's the one that's going to take your place? And, of course, Herod kind of says, well, let me call for my wise men themselves. And he calls the, the, the historians and the, the scribes and, and gets them together. And they said, well, it's in Bethlehem because the scriptures tell us it's in Bethlehem. And so he says to them, now you go and you find him and you bring back word to me because I want to go. And I want to worship him. Now, this was Herod the Great. 
And there have been many Herods that have been passed on, but this guy had a particular reputation. But what I find so interesting is that these men traveled thousands of miles coming from far away, loaded down with camels. And we looked last week at the, how the star had disappeared, but they kept on their journey. They kept going. They were never dissuaded from where they wanted, and they, they made sure that they were going to continue on this journey. They had a hunger to worship him. And they press through, and they find a king in Jerusalem who did not only not know where Jesus was, wasn't even sure at what time he was to even be born because Herod had to ask them. Whereas, when did you guys start? When when did the star appear? Let me know all the information that you have. Now, what maybe you don't know, but but is very clear to find out, and I, I actually put it on a map so that you could see, the distance between Jerusalem... And Bethlehem was 5.52 miles. They came from thousands of miles away, these, these uh, wise men, in, in a distance that took months for them to complete. And Jerusalem to Bethlehem is 5.52 miles. Not even as far as Carabas and the Outback and places that you're going to go for lunch today. Not even, not even that far. Can you imagine? He was unwilling to travel just that short distance and said to them, No, you go bring back word to me because I want to go worship him. Of course, we know that he had ulterior motives. He had no intention of worshiping. I want to talk to you a little bit about what worship is. I've, I say this often, what worship is, but, but let me just give you two things this morning because it's so clear in this story what worship is. Number one, worship is the dethroning of self. Worship is the dethroning of self. Herod clung to that throne. Man, he, he wanted nothing to do with being replaced. He was not willing to, to move into retirement. There was, there was nothing about him that said, okay, I think I'm done now with ruling and reigning. He wanted to stay on that throne, and he was willing to do anything to stay on the throne. And let me tell you, that's what self does. Self does not want to be replaced. Self likes being in charge of self. Self likes the praise and the worship. Self likes telling itself what to do. You see? Herod was so intent on staying king that he actually killed two of his own sons lest they ascend to the throne. He had ten wives. He killed several of them as well. He killed his own father-in-law. He killed anybody that was a threat to his throne. And we find out later that he killed every baby two and under in Bethlehem. Thinking that he was going to wipe out any threat to being replaced. And let me tell you, self loves the praise. And Herod loved the praise. Self doesn't want to be dethroned. Self wants the worship. And and I know that most people in here would say, no, 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 I I would never put myself on the throne. And and I I would say it too. But yet in some of the things that we do, we'd exactly put self on the throne. 
We can love God and, 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 and want to do right, but yet when we refuse to worship, what we're actually doing is we're, we're keeping self on the throne some way. Listen, I was there. When I was a teenager, I loved God. I was a good kid. If you don't believe me, my mom will be here in second service. You just ask her. I was a good, good kid. Man, I was in church. We were out witnessing. But I really struggled in the area of worship. I just couldn't do it. I could do it privately at the house. I could do it when nobody was looking. But when people were looking, I just struggled with it. And I remember we had a youth group, and in our youth group, we had hundreds of kids in our youth group. We had a youth group that was so popular that, that I graduated from Santa Lucia's high school, and, and the church was just a couple miles away, that at any Wednesday night, any of my friends, anybody from the school could have showed up. Our youth group was that popular. I never knew who was going to show up. So, man, the worship band would start, and I'd want to worship so bad. I just wanted to lift my hands, but I was so afraid at what people might think. I just left self on the phone. It was just pride. I was just too afraid of lifting my hands because I did not want people to think that I was worshiping or that I was too radical, too much of a Christian. Pride kept me from lifting my hands. And I remember that I would sit there. Now, you can imagine hundreds of people in this building called Hawkins Hall, which is not that big of a building. And so I would just sit there, and, and, they, and people would be worshiping all around me. And I would just want to lift my hands. And I remember vividly that I would sit there, and I would just kind of keep my hands like this. And then I would just kind of look to my right, and I'd look to my left. And I thought, that's it. I'm lifting my hands. But before I did, I would just check to make sure none of my friends were in, in anybody I know, anybody I hang out with, because, you know, I, I wasn't doing everything right. I wasn't perfect, so I thought, you know, I don't want them to see me. So when I knew the coast was clear, just lift my hands right here. I thought, well, the worst they could think is that I'm just a little bit spiritual. You know what I mean? See, what I, I just kept self on the throne. I just refused to, to worship. And I would sit right here, and I remember just vividly, just my hands would go here. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything unspiritual about this. You know, Pastor Peters, who I, uh, I love and adore, has been my pastor all of my life. He worships God often with his hands here. So nothing unspiritual. But for me, it was, it was important. It was symbolic of what was going on in the inside. And so I made a deal with God. When I finally broke that thing off of my life, I made a deal with God that never again would my hands stay here, that they would always go up. And, and because I had to get to a point, and all of us have to get to that point when we are willing to worship him regardless of what anybody thinks, who's looking, who's not looking, what they think, what they care, regardless of what is going on inside of them, I'm not going to let what they have going on inside of them affect what's going on inside of me. Amen? I don't want to cling to self anymore. I don't want to cling to the throne anymore. I don't need the adulation. I don't need the praise. I don't need the reputation. I don't need people to think this or that about me. I could care less what people think now. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to lift my hands. I'm going to get excited. Amen? 
If I want to dance, jump up and down, I mean, you know, I'm not the most rhythmic person in the world, but I'm going to do it. Hallelujah. Amen. And that's where worship is. Worship is the dethroning of self. When we take self off the throne, it's not all about us. We don't always get the praise. We don't always get the adulation. It's not about how many likes we get. Amen? It's all about Him. I was reminded, even as I was studying this week for this, of an incredible story of a guy who at one time in his life was the center of attention for the entire United States. His name was Frank Reich. And he was the backup quarterback to the Buffalo Bills. I know we have many Bills fans here today. I'm sure just certain of it. Anyway, so he is the backup quarterback to a guy named Jim Kelly, a Hall of Fame quarterback. And Jim had gotten hurt, and Frank took over the quarterback duties, and the Buffalo Bills ended up getting into the playoffs through a wild card. And on January 3rd, 1993, they entered the AFC wild card game playing the Houston Oilers. And they were being trounced. They were being absolutely mauled. By the third quarter, the score was 32 to 3. And then all of a sudden, something happened. But I want you to read what happened on the way to the stadium, not just what happened in the stadium that day, in Frank's own words. Listen to what he had to say. As I warmed up my car on a cold Buffalo morning, I readied myself to drive to Rich Stadium where I was to start my first NFL playoff game. This particular day, we were playing the Houston Oilers in the AFC wildcard game, and as the windows of my car were defrosting, I listened to a song I had heard at least a hundred times that week. The song was In Christ Alone, performed by Michael English. I sat and I listened again to the words and the music which had so inspired me all week long. And with the song ending and the windows fully defrosted, I was ready for my short drive to Ridge Stadium, but instead of heading for the game, I sat and I listened to the song again and again. Finally, I pulled out a tablet from my playbook and I wrote down the words to that incredible song. I sensed God telling me that somehow he wanted me to share that song with someone that day. Perhaps it would be with a teammate, a friend, or even a stranger, but right there in my car, I promised God that I would obey. Well, little did I realize what God had planned. We won our game against Houston 41-38 to in overtime, a game in which we were losing drastically midway through the third quarter, a game now known as the greatest comeback in NFL history. As I stood behind the podium before the massive media at the post-game press conference, it was very clear to me just how God intended to share that powerful song that day. And before he answered any question, Frank started the press conference, he said this, let me read these words. In Christ alone will I glory. 
though I could pride myself in battle won. For I have been blessed beyond measure, and by his strength alone I overcome. Oh, I could stop and count successes like diamonds in my hand, but those trophies could not equal to the grace by which I stand. In Christ alone I place my trust and find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope, in Christ alone. In Christ alone will I glory, for only by his grace I am redeemed. And only his tender mercy could reach beyond my weakness to my need. Now I seek no greater honor than just to know him more and to count my gains but losses and the glory of the Lord. Wow. It's an amazing story, and I remember actually watching clips of that press conference as he stood and read those words before he answered any question. A man who at any time could have just soaked in the praise. He could have just soaked in the love and the admiration. He could have just made it all about him, a backup quarterback leading his team to the greatest comeback in NFL history. But he stood there on that podium and he said, listen, I want everybody to know it's not about me. It's about Christ and Christ alone. I take no glory to myself. I take no honor to myself. But just to know him and him crucified. Wow. Listen, every time we come in on Sunday mornings, every time you worship in the car, every time you go to your private place on the back porch or in the kitchen, wherever it is that you find your private time, every time you lift your hands to him, you say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. I dethrone self. I take self off of the throne and I make it all about you today. Amen? That is the essence of worship. That is what worship is all about. It's about deflecting the praise. It's about saying it is all about him and not about me. See, I I don't know about you, but I find that inside of me, there's always this little Herod trying to rise up. This little part of me that doesn't want to take self off the throne, that wants my own way. I want to do it my way, my time. I want to hold on to those things that are mine. It's my money, my stuff. It's all about me. And and God is saying, don't make your life all about you. Make it all about him. Who deserves our praise? Him and him alone. Number two, what worship really is, is the unloading of all we have. It's just the unloading of all that we have. You know, it's interesting to see the nativity scene and, and we read here and you could read it again in Matthew chapter 2. The Bible says that they came into the house where Jesus was. They didn't come into the stable. And it says, and when they saw the young child and that phrase young child is in the Greek, uh, means toddler, so not a baby, but Jesus at this time was probably one to two years old and they'd already moved into their own house. But when they came into the house and they saw the young child, the Bible says they fell down. Now, these were not kings, but you've got to understand, these were people of status. 
These were advisors to the king. These were people who had a great reputation. People who at some point in their life were worshipped themselves. But when they saw the king of all kings, they fell down and the Bible says, and worshipped him. And then it says this, and they opened their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They opened their treasures, gold, and at that time, spices, frankincense, and myrrh were, were some places more valuable than gold itself. These were not small treasures. And let me tell you, I know in the nativity scene, you see them carrying little boxes, but I don't believe they were little boxes. You didn't come before a natural king with regular boxes. You read in the Old Testament when the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon, she didn't bring a box. She brought treasure upon treasure, which was very typical, very normal. When you came before the king, you didn't just bring a little bit. You brought a ton. You brought a bunch of stuff. And here they are visiting the king of the Jews who they know to be divine. No, they didn't bring a little box. They brought camels that were loaded down with gold, loaded down with spices of frankincense and myrrh. And they just unloaded all of it. Here it is. Here's here's everything that we could bring. Here's all that we could have. Here's it all. And they fell down and they opened their treasures and they gave him a gift that was worthy of a king. Just a gift that's worthy of a king. Now, I don't know what you have to give this morning as far as natural stuff. Of course, God, God demands of us to, 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 to give in a tangible way, of course, an obedience to his word, tithing and offerings and above that. But more than anything else, more than anything else, he wants the worship that is on our lips and in our heart. He wants us to worship and unload what we truly have. And say that we walk into this place, this auditorium this morning, and we lift our hands and we say, God, more than the finances that I bring, more than the things that I'm willing to give you, here's my heart today. Here's my hands lifted up. And I just want to unload what I have today. And tomorrow I'll get another opportunity. And the next day another opportunity to once again Give you my heart, God. Give you my hands. Give you my feet. Give you my service. Following service today and, and second service as well, we're going to be distributing food to people who need it. And if you're here today and you're, you're struggling, you're going through a tough time, uh, we have enough food to feed about 30 families uh, just walk back to the back kitchen. If you know somebody, if you have a neighbor, you have a coworker, if you have a family member that's struggling this Christmas, we're going to have bags of food ready immediately following. Because our serve team is just sitting there just going, okay, who, how can I, I worship? It's not just in song. It's in everything that we do. We just worship him. We just unload what we have. What can I do? What can I do? What can I give? What can I offer God? Amen? Whatever I can give, whatever I can offer, that's what I want to do, but I'm not bringing a small gift. I'm bringing a gift that is fit for a king today. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to go back into worship this morning.
And, and I'm just going to encourage you to take some time. You say, well, Pastor, my personality is. No, I don't want to hear how your personality is and you're more reserved and you're more laid back. No, 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 I don't want to hear that. By nature, I, I'm an introvert. By nature, I, 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 I don't like being on a platform or I just like blending in and, and, and just, just uh, me and my wife, we'll just go in a corner somewhere. And, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just us. God's pushed me up here. God's the one that propelled me onto a a platform to speak and to do all these things. And and it's not because of talent or ability or or personality. It's simply because of what he's called us to do. Listen, and he's called you to worship him. He's called you to lift your hands. He's called you to lift your voice. So I don't want to hear personality, this, that, or I'm I'm just a little more. No, no, no. Let's take self off the throne completely let's not care what people think what anyone's gonna say or what they might look at us and consider let's consider only him who is worth all of our praise Herod would not even make a six mile journey while several other men went months on a very harsh journey just to fall at his feet, worship him, and unload everything that that they possibly could unload. And they left it all. They left it all. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're so grateful for our time this morning. Lord, we do, we worship you today. God, we worship you with everything that we have.